Welcome to the crux of the story. I'm Mike Fernandez, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Gary Sheffer. Gary, how are you doing this week? I am really excited for a couple of reasons. Because of our guest, I want to say first and foremost. But secondly, Mike, because Aaron Judge hit his 60-second home run last night. So all things are just really rosy with me. You know what's amazing for me about that 60-second home run is, so I had been on a flight back to Calgary and I open up my computer and I look at it. And not only when I went into ESPN was there the video story, but there was a little ad that you could hit above it on ESPN. And that ad was an Enbridge ad. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was, it was like a twofer for me. Wow. It was great. That's fantastic. Good yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, today we're, we're going to explore the world of indigenous engagement, communication, and reconciliation in North America. Any specific interests you have in this area, Gary? I've recently come to spend a lot of time in my personal reading on indigenous issues in the United States. I had never read uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and I went through that recently. And, and then there's a book about the history of, of Native Americans, indigenous people in the U.S. since that time, which explores, tries knocks down the myth about the sort of end of Indian culture in the United States. So I've been spending a lot of my time, my personal reading on this, and really listening to some of the stuff going on, uh, Mike, in the United States at the PR Museum where they've had several, uh, and I think you've sponsored some of that, Mike, several discussions on, on the Native American communicators and the, and the work they do today. So I'm, I'm pumped for this conversation. Well, good, good, good. Because on uh, September 30th, Canada observed its second official national day for truth and reconciliation, a statutory federal holiday intended to educate and remind Canadian citizens of the sad history of residential schools where young Indigenous children had been extracted from their families and cultural traditions. It is also a day that honors the victims and celebrates the survivors of the residential schools. And in the U.S., on October 10th, we will celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day on the same day that many in the U.S. historically have celebrated Columbus Day. Given uh, these dates and given, given recent news from a number of Canadian companies and organizations, coming forth with indigenous uh, reconciliation action plans, uh, we thought we would explore the world of indigenous communications and some of the trends and activities that are really driving greater engagement with First Nations and indigenous communities, both in Canada and the United States. And to help us on that journey, we've invited Leanne Hall, the CEO of Creative Fire, to join us. Creative Fire is a 100% Indigenous-owned, full-service strategic communications agency. Its work spans everything you expect from a state-of-the-art PR firm, and then some, from social and digital media to data analytics, communications, design, and branding. And among its specialties are Indigenous engagement and partnerships, diversity and inclusion strategies, and ESG assessments and reporting. 
Leanne Hall, prior to being hired to lead Creative Fire as its CEO, was the national leader of Deloitte's Indigenous practice, serving over 275 Indigenous communities across Canada. She also has served as the director of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. And in a bit of uh, truth in advertising, I feel the obligation to also say she and her team did a terrific job. That's Creative Fire assisted my team at Enbridge with the development of our own Indigenous uh, Reconciliation Action Plan. So Leanne, thank you for joining us. Uh, I know you want to start us off on a bit of a land acknowledgement, so welcome. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Good day and thank you everyone and my name is Leanne Hall. I'm actually calling in from today from the traditional territory of the Six Nations of the Grand River and the Haudenosaunee people just outside of Toronto, Ontario, home of the Toronto Blue Jays who are in the wild card. So I'm really excited for She's our- trying to balance our, our Aaron Judge New York Yankees drill here. <laughs> well, his 70, uh, or his, sorry, his 61st home run was in Toronto and it was caught by a, a gentleman by the name of Frankie Lasagna who owns uh, an Italian restaurant out of Toronto. <laughs> So thank you so much. And so as I started that uh, this morning is that, you know, it's common practice now in Canada, especially when you're starting meetings or different engagements to acknowledge the territory that you are on. Um, And it just this allows, you know, really an opportunity to acknowledge, you know, that the first people um, here in Canada, their land position and just being respectful, you know, that they were the first uh, people to be honored um, here in Canada. So thank you for that opportunity to do that. Leah, where I would like to start is with the notion of reconciliation with First Nations and Indigenous peoples. You know, Canada, as I said in the intro, just observed its National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. What is reconciliation in this context and what happens on this day and what should it mean for all of us living in North America? Yeah, thanks, Mike. And I think before I start into a journey of reconciliation, maybe I'll just share a little personal anecdote about myself. So my two children are my biological children. They're First Nation from Northern Alberta, the Sucker Creek First Nation. So all of their, you know, their grandparents, their aunties and uncles, all were uh, really raised in the residential schools. So we have firsthand knowledge of really the travesty that this happened for Indigenous people and the effects, um, you know, that it has had on the survivors in the school system um, in Canada. So, you know, it it touches me very personally. And this is why, you know, when I come to the, the part of reconciliation, it was also 
my role as a parent to make sure that the intergenerational trauma that happened because of residential schools, that it stopped with myself and, and the way that I parented my two kids. So before we embark on really this conversation about reconciliation, it is really important to lead with the truth. And that is directly connected to that term of reconciliation. And as you alluded to, you know, there was many travesties that happened in Canada. So, you know, with uh, the residential school system, they began in 1883. And, you know, they were run by the federal government, operated by, uh, you know, different uh, religious institutions. And a total of 130 of them, you know, resided and operated in Canada between 1831 up until 1996. So this isn't so far in the past. This is mm. something, you know, recent. Mm -hmm. um, over 150,000 First Nation, Métis and Inuit children were forced to attend these residential schools during this period. Thousands died. You know, while they were at the residential school, so many negative experiences that were extremely hard for these children to overcome. So they were forbidden to wear their traditional clothing. They weren't allowed to participate in ceremony. They were given usually the name of, uh, you know, the priest, um, you know, from that. So they, they were stripped of their language, stripped of their culture, stripped of their names. And then most upsetting, obviously, was the, the abuse that happened at these schools. So, you know, very significant um, physical, sexual uh, abuse happened as well as emotional um, abuse. And we understood more of this last May. Um, so May 2021, uh, the remains of over 250 Indigenous children were found in BC um, on the grounds of a former residential school. And unmarked. Unmarked graves, yes, unmarked graves. Since then, a total of over 10,000 unmarked graves have been discovered uh, at these residential schools. And, you know, again, more are, you know, coming forward. So we first lead with that point of we really all have to understand the truth. And I feel that's where, you know, Canadians across Canada, they have taken this time to starting to reflect, observe and understand about the impacts of residential school, you know, in Canada. So that's where we first start. You, you know, what, one of the things that would be useful, I think, is because there's more discussion about this in Canada than the U.S. and a fair number of our listeners are from the U.S. and, and even other countries in, in Europe and in Asia, it would be helpful to talk about Orange Shirt Day, maybe, and, and kind of how that was one element of, of awareness. Yes. Um, so before it became the National Truth and Reconciliation uh, Day in Canada, which is two years, in 2013, Phyllis Webstad, who is a residential school survivor from British Columbia, from the Williams Lake Treaty area, she described a time when she was six years old and she arrived on the doorstep of her residential school with an orange shirt that her grandmother had gave her. And as soon as she arrived... They stripped her of the shirt, and then she never saw that shirt again. So she started Orange Shirt Day to raise awareness around Indigenous residential school survivors. And so she has a, an organization called Orange Shirt Society. So from 2013 to present, you know, on this day, September 30th, and she chose September 30th because it was a mark of, you know, 
a lot of children that were stripped from their homes, you know, brought to residential schools. And now, you know, everyone wears those um, orange shirts in order to recognize, honor, and reflect upon the travesties that had happened. So, so like Gary, you'll see Canadians wearing orange t-shirts throughout that day. And, and, and people who are not indigenous, but in observance of this and support of this moment. Yeah, it's very powerful. And, and you have seen over the years, you know, it started, you know, with a few people. Now it's in every public school. They observe, uh, you know, Orange Shirt Day. Now we have the federal government observing it for the last two years. Um, you know, we have some uh, different provinces or territories that are observing. But what's really interesting is we have corporations, large corporations now that are taking that day, allowing their employees, um, like I said, to take that opportunity to create knowledge and reflect. And we feel this has gone a long way in supporting those reconciliation efforts is allowing time for, for people, for your employees, you know, to have that time to really understand that history. So, so one of the things I, I think would be interesting for you to touch on as well, I mean, this past summer, there was a visit to Canada by the Pope. Uh, many of the schools were run by Catholic priests. And as a consequence, he did a huge sort of mea culpa and met with many Indigenous people across the country. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so that was an interesting, you know, that was an interesting visit and actually had been five or six years in the making of, um, you know, asking the Pope to come and do a formal apology to, you know, the uh, the residential school survivors. And, you know, to be honest, there's very mixed feelings. So right. there are, you know, community members who said that was a start, at least is, again, acknowledging, um, you know, what had happened. Others are saying that's really just the beginning and what more can be done, um, you know, from the Vatican, you know, to support, uh, you know, that reconciliation and healing. So I see it as a, a beginning, you know, um, of trying to heal uh, from that dark, from that dark time and that dark past. Uh, Leanne, uh, I'm just so interested in, in this topic. And I, I mentioned earlier, and I, and I just want to let our listeners know, I, I the, the name of the book that speaks to some of the issues in Canada that also occurred here in the United States, uh, including the schools, the residential schools where um, children were taken away from their families. Here, it's, it's um, and I'm probably going to pronounce the name wrong, David Truer, I believe is how you say it. And it's called uh, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Native America from 1890 to the present. And, and, and I forgot to mention, I'm also, this is, sounds like the Gary Sheffers show, but I'm also reading uh, a new biography of Jim Thorpe. Oh, yeah. That is really compelling, Path Lit by Lightning. And of course, he was uh, at, a, as, at a school uh, as well. That's by David Moranis, the great biographer. But I want to come back to Leanne with you, the reconciliation. So it's a national day of truth and reconciliation. So I understand the truth part of it. What is what does the reconciliation part of that mean? 
So the next part about, you know, understanding the truth is that, and, and maybe this is a difference between Canada and the United States, that we formed um, a commission and it's the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2007. And they went to into residential school survivors and, you know, really understood and took, you know, their history, their oral, uh, you know, recollections of that time as part of the the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. So that was part of the process is, is to do that. And it was led by Murray Sinclair. And this time, um, again, as part of that reconciliation, is going to, you know, communities across the country documenting, you know, the truth of what had happened to them. They created a report, and that is the Truth and Reconciliation Report that was published in 2015. And out of that came 94 recommendations based on those firsthand interviews. So I think that to me is a really important piece as to why Canada is taking action. And so one of those actions was that the federal government would create a day of reflection and observation called National Truth and Reconciliation Day. So although it was this report came in 2015, it wasn't until 2021 that that day actually became formally recognized. But that is the mechanism by which, again, we can take action as individuals, as institutions, as companies that we have these 94 calls to action, you know, and, and all of them are in various different implementation, uh, you know, cycles today. But that to me is a very, very powerful process and document that roots us, you know, in that reconciliation journey. That's, that's really interesting. And, and, and Mike had made a reference to reconciliation in a business context. So, and, and specifically some work that's been done at Enbridge. So I'm going to ask both of you, Mike, if you don't mind, what is business business's role in advancing uh, reconciliation? Leanne, I'll ask you that. And then Mike, I'll ask you to t- tell me what the Ind- Indigenous Reconciliation Action Plan is at Enbridge. I'm very, I'm very interested. So one of the calls to action, call to action 92, was the only one specific to addressing the business community. And it asked the corporate sector to look at three various different elements in that call to, you know, in that call to action. So the first one was that, you know, we have to look at adopting, uh, you know, the United Declaration Rights for Indigenous People, um, allowing for free, prior and informed consent. So Indigenous communities would like to be consulted, informed, educated about uh, different business elements. The second one is that in the corporate sector, we uh, committed to employing and training of Indigenous people. And the third one um, was about informing, you know, your uh, employees, your stakeholders and your rights holders on a cultural awareness journey so that we talk about the history, that we talk about where we are and that erasing that awareness. So those are the three, three items that are under call to action uh, 92. So What was interesting is that uh, reconciliation action plans were originally started in Australia. And in Australia, every company is required uh, to submit a reconciliation action plan and refresh it every two years. Hmm. So for ourselves in, in Canada, we thought this is a really great opportunity because communities are asking for transparency and accountability to actions in the corporate sector. 
And so um, I'll turn it over to Mike just to talk about his experience in developing and drafting of uh, the Reconciliation Action Plan. But if we go future state, this is now going to be, we're seeing in about five years from now, this will be a requirement for every public company in Canada. And that's exactly about that. It's about truth. It's about transparency. And it's about accountability. Yeah, and I'm extremely proud of kind of the caring, thoughtful work that uh, many people, both inside Enbridge and outside Enbridge, took to help to shape uh, our our own Indigenous uh, Reconciliation Action Plan. Uh, what we did is we literally reached out to hundreds of communities uh, across Canada and had conversations uh, around, you know, what might be in the best interest of those communities and what could we do to make a difference, uh, particularly in the communities that are where we as a business live and work. You know, we're in part a pipeline company and a uh, those pipelines We've had to uh, earn easements and rights of ways from lots of these communities as well. But we wanted to approach this in a respectful and collaborative way, which is why we reached out to a lot of communities. It's also why we engaged a a firm like Creative Fire. It's why uh, the, the artists and a lot of the writers who worked on this project with us are also indigenous. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, what we came up with were a total of 22 commitments that includes goals associated with jobs at Enbridge. It includes educational support. It includes economic inclusion and opportunity for a number of these communities. And in fact, we had a proof point uh, just a week ago where we announced a relationship where there is uh, 23 uh, different indigenous and Métis communities that have taken an equity interest in the pipes that run through their communities in, in, in Alberta. Wow. Quite a historical moment. And there are also measures in there that also deal with how we're going to regard and treat the environment and surrounding environment uh, on their lands. So really... Uh, all-inclusive, but a big part of it for us is the economic partnerships. We're also, even in the U.S., doing uh, solar self-power projects with Indigenous communities. We have a major carbon capture and storage project that's been enabled not only by working with Indigenous communities, but also by uh, provincial, uh, provincial governments in Canada. I have to say that, uh, you know, the Enbridge project, it really is a best in class for a reconciliation action plan. And the reason why they're so impactful is one is you engage community. So we, you know, they were um, informed, they were, we collaborate, we listen, we learn from communities and develop the, the plan. So it's not an initiative, but reconciliation action plans are an enterprise wide strategic framework that's endorsed by CEOs and boards. So we know that they're going to get done. We know that they're going to get done. And what's interesting is that for reconciliation action plans, 
we look to refresh these every two years. So we report on the outcomes that, um, you know, and the commitments that they have made. And then we refresh them because reconciliation is not done. It's again, it's part of a, it's part of a journey. Mm -hmm. So in Canada, we see now well over 80 uh, companies have uh, published their reconciliation action plans this year alone. And like I said, we're seeing that within the next five years, it's going to be a requirement for every public company, but great leadership on, on Enbridge. Um, And again, it really sets an opportunity for communities to see transparency and that accountability um, for organizations. But it also allows this incredible impact for Indigenous people. You know, they've asked for opportunities in these organizations. They're asking for real economic, you know, benefits. And as Mike was just talking about this, uh, this equity opportunity for communities has never been done before. So we say this is this is fantastic because this is exactly setting the new standard, you know, for North America for equity participation and creating true wealth, Amazing. you know, for communities. Yeah, and to add on to that, so we had a a modernization project of one of our older lines that ran through Minnesota that was completed last year. The whole line runs from Canada, North Dakota, uh, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. But the uh, what was interesting is 500 of the jobs on that line were given to indigenous personnel. And we also worked with labor unions to train those individuals in such a way that it once our job was done, they were still enabled to be able to have similar types of work through those unions going forward. So that was significant. The other significant thing I think is, is the awareness piece. So this year, every Enbridge employee, both in the United States and in Canada, had to go through Indigenous cultural awareness training. And, you know, we're, you know, we have until the end of the year, but I mean, our numbers right now are sitting at like 99%. So as every new employee comes in, we're training them. The other interesting element for me is that there are a sizable member of, uh, there are a sizable number of my team members in both Canada and the United States who are Indigenous. Well, Mike, I, w- I would say, I hate to give you credit for anything, Mike. You know, <laughs> you know me. I'm always looking for an edge. But congratulations, and particularly on the economic side of that, and and, and the training side of that. That's just really, that's really terrific. And so I, uh, congratulations to you and Embridge for that kind of foresight. Yeah. Well, the other side of it for Leanne and for Creative Fire, I mean, they were great guides in the journey as well as helping us develop the actual report. And I think, Leanne, it may be useful to to share with, with Gary and others kind of how you deal with a client on, on, on some of these things, and maybe not specifically with Enbridge, but because the federal government has put out a, a marker there for a large publicly traded companies uh, to have to report on what they're doing. That's creating, if you will, another sort of corporate reporting tool. So Leanne, we'll turn it back over to you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. 
You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yes, we think it's a, a really healthy. And again, it's uh, rather than looking at it as um, it, it's maybe twofold. It's one is the corporate disclosure. So creating, you know, um, annual, you know, we've got ESG reporting and now reconciliation action plans. So looking at, you know, that's what the invest, it's what your investors are looking for. That's what regulators are looking for. That's what your employees are looking at those markers. But more importantly, now it's communities. So communities are starting to do scorecards, you know, on their corporate partners. And this is allowing them to really assess your true performance. Um, and, and you know, you're backing up the things that you're saying that you're doing and reporting on that publicly. So it's a really important piece to that. So for Creative Fire, you know, we really act as trusted advisors. So this is an area that is our is our, is our specialty. Um, so we walk, you know, organizations through this reconciliation action plan uh, process. Uh, we work again as a, on an enterprise wide uh, approach, trying to see and learn about where are they in their current state, and then what targets or commitments can we look at in the next couple of years. So it's a it's a very um, collaborative process that we that we have, but also very inspiring because again we can see what uh, what different organizations are looking for. So another one of our our clients, Ontario Power Generation, had gone through this process and published their reconciliation action plan last last October. And in particular, the chief supply chain officer, Karen Fritz, she really came to life. So she brought her entire team and looked at every process, you know, um, from, uh, you know, a power generation, a nuclear organization as well. And so what can we do better on Indigenous supply chain and procurement? So Examples of the things that she made commitments to is a billion dollar spend over 10 years. So we say that's net new for Indigenous company. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, in the nuclear space, she said it's very, very complicated for vendors to become nuclear qualified. So she made a commitment to, for example, two Indigenous companies being nuclear certified. So all these things, again, it's, it's, it's leaders taking deep look at how do we do better from a corporate performance that will have greater impact impact for communities. So our process is just really about learning, listening, pushing the envelope, uh, you know, sharing other best practices that are happening globally. You know, another client of, of ours, uh, CBRE, which is a large real estate company globally, their CEO made a commitment uh, globally of a $3 billion spend for supplier diversity. Right. So we took this within Canada and said, well, how can Indigenous companies be a part of that, um, you know, supplier diversity portfolio. And again, this is this is why it's so powerful because uh, CEOs and boards are really taking action around this. So if we have listeners with companies that maybe don't have to report or American companies, um, how do they engage? I think I've heard the term allyship. Yeah, wonderful to be allies for, for really for Indigenous people overall. And it starts with that, you know, Again, Gary, reading those books, you know, watching those, uh, you know, watching those videos, listening to podcasts, and and what do we do as as an ally? And like I said, for myself, I I'm honored to to consider myself an ally of Indigenous people and organizations, but really for myself, it's it's just about taking that action. So it doesn't have to be, you know 
a lot. It's just about curiosity, about informing yourself, educating yourself and taking that next step. Perhaps it's, you know, going to a restaurant that is owned, um, you know, and by Indigenous, uh, by an Indigenous business or trying Indigenous foods. You know, it's going for, you know, a walk, um, you know, on Indigenous, uh, with an Indigenous community leader. It's listening to elders. It's all of those things that are are really just demonstrating that, uh, that journey towards allyship. Leanne, could we take a step back? Because I'm so, you've described some of your work, but I'm interested in the agency itself. Sure. Create a Fire, and I love the name, but this is, it's a pretty big shop, right? And, and, and 100% Indigenous owned. You've got some big clients, you've got some government clients, Indigenous and First Nation clients. Tell us about, about your firm. It's really interesting. Creative Fire was started 22 years ago in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and it was a full service creative agency supporting the Saskatchewan market. So <laughs> just prior to the pandemic in December of 2019, the economic development arm of English River First Nation in Saskatchewan acquired Creative Fire to support its wealth creation strategy. So let me share you a little bit about English River. So English River is 700 kilometers north of Saskatoon. So it's north. They're a very, very proud Dene, uh, Dene community. And a big part of themselves is, is they looked 30 years ago and said, we do not want to be dependent on the federal government, wow. um, that we want to create our own source revenue. And so they created this economic development arm and made many different investments in businesses. So fast forward to December of 2019, they acquired Creative Fire. So at the time, um, you know, this is like I said, just prior to the pandemic, you know, it was based out of Saskatoon. And, you know, we just got the team together and said, what is our vision? And we said, you know, our vision is to be the leader, you know, in Indigenous communications, design, strategy and consulting. And that was the opportunity that we had in front of us. So at the time when we acquired the business, we had four clients. So now, you know, during the pandemic, and although we couldn't really see a lot of people, you know, we led with our, our purpose-driven values. And so now we have well over 200 clients uh, from coast to coast to coast. Um, we have team members who are First Nation, Métis, and Inuit. We have over 80% 80 80 of our team are women, but we lead with purpose. So 100% of our net profits are returned to the community to support them in their community-based ventures. That's amazing. Which is really like, you know, that's just, it is an, an amazing story. And our team um, are really driven by this impact. So when we work with organizations, we say it's not really about the revenue that we're generating. It's more about what is the net impact for Indigenous people around the world with the work that we're doing. And that's what really drives our team to get up in the morning and, and do great work. It's because they know it's going to have uh, you know long-lasting benefits. Sure. What's two, two follow-up questions, Leanne. What percentage of your work is Indigenous-related? versus other and and I know I see one of your clients is TikTok. <laughs> what what are you what are you all doing for TikTok? Great. Yeah, good question. Um, so 100% of our engagements are Indigenous related. So we support not only Indigenous communities and, and businesses, but companies come to us because we're experts in understanding the Indigenous space. So that's really, you know, I would say the the really interesting marker of where we start. So when I when I think about TikTok, 
And so how TikTok came to us is in June is National Indigenous Peoples uh, Month in, in Canada. And TikTok had never done anything with uh, Indigenous people. So they came to us as an Indigenous firm and said, okay, we want to have Indigenous-led views and design principles as we're thinking about, you know, what is this opportunity uh, to partner with TikTok? So we devised a campaign. It's called Living Stories. So the hashtag is Living Stories. And it was to use TikTok as an educational tool and engage elders, youth, influencers to tell the stories of Indigenous communities, to share their foods, to share their words um, across across the country. So hmm. in one month, we had over 12 million wow. views around the world. That's impressive. So when we think about making an impact... That will live on forever. And so now we have Indigenous influencers all around the world, you know, sharing their stories, knowledge, and education. And again, that was just a really powerful impact of the power of the platforms and sharing, uh, you know, sharing their stories. Now, some of your work also is just related to what we might see in other firms. I know you've done a lot of work for Nutrien in terms of like annual reports, ESG reports. Talk a little bit about some of that work. Yes, again, so in that, that uh, space of global organizations, you know, supplier diversity is extremely important to these companies. And, you know, as an Indigenous company, we are a diverse supplier. So originally, uh, so we, we originally started way back when Nutrien was the Potash Corporation. And so we developed all of their ESG strategies, their annual reporting, and have stayed with them as a supplier from Creative Fire as a full service agency to now working with them, uh, you know, on some of their global initiatives. So yes, we originally started and still do their corporate, uh, their corporate reporting, but also, you know, from a diversity and inclusion perspective, you know, we worked with them many years ago, they were one of the first companies to look at indigenous procurement. And so we created guides for them on how they would work with their supply chain network, um, you know, to get more indigenous uh, businesses involved in, uh, in nutrients. So they're wonderful. Like they've been a wonderful client of, of creative fire and tremendous champions of indigenous inclusion all around. So Leanne, I, I want to pull back a tad before we close this out and, and ask you to share a little bit about your background and how you came to have an interest in indigenous issues and ultimately what drew you to this role as CEO of uh, Creative Fire? Well, I always say that it's like a, a river. It's meandering and maneuvering your, <laughs> your career path. <laughs> so mine, after university, I went out to uh, Alberta. And at the time, uh, the Alberta government was privatizing all their career and employment services. So as a young you know, university graduate at 26, I decided to start my own business. And I took over all of Northern Alberta, which included the majority of them were First Nation and Métis communities and provided career and employment services on behalf of the provincial and federal government. So when you're working with communities on their goals, you have a deep and intimate relationship with those communities and understanding, you know, the complexities and the challenges that they have. And my role at the time as a budding entrepreneur was to invest in people, 
and uh, to make sure that jobs, you know, remained with community members. So how could they coach from like a nation to nation perspective, their community members, you know, for career development and making sure that they had the ability to be exposed to all kinds of different career paths. So that's how I originally, uh, that's how I originally started is, is in the, the world of, of Indigenous was really about intimately understanding communities, interests and perspectives. Fast forward, you know, I had, you know, my, my kids in 2001 and 2004. And when you're a mother of First Nations, you know, kids, you know, you're deeply embedded into understanding about, you know, you want not only your own children to be successful, but you want, you know, all Indigenous youth to be successful. So my heart was really invested from that point on. And so from that perspective, you know, I went into you know, multiple different businesses, again, supporting Indigenous uh, communities to be successful. I did a lot of work as a mining executive, uh, working in the Ring of Fire in Northern Ontario and working with 22 communities on participation and education around, uh, around mining. And then fast forward to not too long ago, you know, landed the role of national leader and partner at Deloitte, um, supporting over 275 communities. And when I was in that role, we had many, you know, Indigenous uh, communities and businesses as our clients. And they started saying to me, you know, what if we flip the switch? What if we had professional services, marketing, you know, communications and design support, but from an Indigenous perspective? And, you know, could you help support us in creating that vision? And so that's where we we looked at, you know, acquiring Creative Fire and then going it from there. So my, my goal and my hope is that we'll create a constellation, you know, of organizations in this space that can look and work together. So right now I I partner with many other indigenous companies that are part of our supply chain. So it's, it's creating that network of indigenous companies that can work and partner together, but I'm really driven by my heart and making a difference. And for myself, this is my way of advancing reconciliation in Canada as, you know, an individual, as a mother, and also as a professional. Well, pun intended, your creative fire shows. (laughs) Leanne, thank you again for being our guest on The Crux. Greatly appreciate your your insights relative to First Nations, Indigenous engagement, communication, and reconciliation, and sharing your expertise as a communicator and sharing with us some of the strengths of your firm. Uh, It's been a pleasure to have you today. Again, Creative Fire's CEO, Leanne Hall on the Crux. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Crux. Our producer is Boston University student Anna Huynh. This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, or COM as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, COM is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash COM.